At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. A Georgia grand jury report partially released to the public on Thursday says one or more witnesses may have committed perjury in testifying about the 2020 election result and the efforts to overturn it. What does that mean for Donald Trump's candidacy and some of his associates? We'll talk about that. Also, as a spending and debt showdown looms in Washington, the Congressional Budget Office interjects a note of fiscal reality with its annual budget review. The U.S. fiscal position has grown much worse in the last two years as the government has expanded enormously. And meanwhile, tax revenue has also hit one of its highest levels ever as a share of the economy. Will any of this reality intrude rudely into the coming fiscal debate. Welcome. I'm Paul Go here with Kate Batchelder and Kim Strasso. Welcome to you both. Let's talk about the grand jury report first. As I said, one conclusion there is that we find by unanimous vote, this is based on the excerpt, that no widespread fraud took place in the Georgia 2020 presidential election that could result in overturning that election. That's one of the conclusions in this heavily redacted partial report that was released by the judge presiding over the grand jury. That grand jury was impaneled in order to investigate uh, whether or not crimes were committed in attempts to overturn the election. And the other conclusion is that a majority that's worthy of note, I think, is a majority of the grand jury believes that perjury may have been committed by one or more witnesses testifying before it. The grand jury recommends that the district attorney seek appropriate indictments for such crimes where the evidence is compelling. Kim, I guess this suggests that some people may be in legal peril if the district attorney moves ahead based on this grand jury recommendation. Agreed. Although what I find really interesting, Paul, is that what they're going to get them on if they do is perjury or lying to the grand jury. Implicit in this report, assuming that we don't get more of it, apparently this is only a portion, you would think that they would have put out the top lines, though. But remember, this was impaneled, as you said, to see if people engaged in crimes in attempting to overturn an election. Now, we have argued that you know, simply floating different legal theories or questioning results uh, doesn't count as a crime. Apparently, the grand jury, it would seem, has come to the same conclusion. But instead, it sounds as though some people may have not been as truthful as the grand jury would have liked in recounting their actions or what they related in some way. And so you're going to get the kind of the grand jury version of lying to the feds here, it sounds like. (laughs) You know, so uh, again, we'll see where it is. We'll see who it is. Not quite sure what this means for Donald Trump and his campaign. The finding that the election was not stolen, I mean, it's good to see the grand jury say this, but that had already been demonstrated quite ably by elected officials, including Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger in the state of Georgia well before now. Right. Correct me if I'm wrong, Kim. I don't think Donald Trump actually 
testified before the grand jury. I mean, I think he took the Fifth Amendment, didn't he? I believe that's true, but I do believe that a number of people in his orbit did go and speak to that jury. Yeah. Now, of course, we're speculating here because we don't have any more information. There are no specific names in the grand jury release, but we thought we'd mention it today on the podcast because it's getting an awful lot of attention in the press. And there has been enormous anticipation about the release of this report. But I think that it's fair to say that the news release today does not move the ball all that much. We're going to have to see what happens moving forward if there are actually any indictments. All right, let's move on to the budget. Kate Batchelder, you're not quite as geeky as me, much more grounded person. But when it comes to these budget numbers, but you do follow them. What's your big takeaway from what CBO said? Yes, Paul, now on to the glamorous material. Uh, this budget outlook, uh, I mean, the big takeaway is one, that it's noticeably worse than even just last year. CBO is predicting $3.3 trillion more in debt than it did last May, about $2 trillion of that due to legislation. So we have public debt that is set to reach about nearly 120% of GDP by 2033. And that's, Paul, if they do no more harm, if they don't blow out spending further with new entitlements, child tax credit, more climate spending, Obamacare subsidies. So we have a spending picture. And so that debt we see going way up basically because we have a mismatch between a tax ledger and a spending ledger. It's not hard to understand. Taxes are about 18% of the economy, which is really above its historical norm, but within that range. So we can't attribute what's going on here to insufficient taxation. But it's the spending side. It's 24.6% of the economy. I mean, nearly a quarter, just way above the norm of 21%. I mean, it's, if you're taking in $60 trillion over a decade and spending $80 trillion, you don't need a PhD in economics to know that you have a problem. So I think the takeaway is just we are really putting the gas pedal on our fiscal problems and they're just developing more acutely and more quickly than the public may appreciate. Let's break it down first on the revenue side. Actually, in fiscal 2022, which ended in September, tax revenues as a share of the economy reached almost 20 percent, 19.6 percent. That compares with the 50-year average of only 17.4 percent. What that shows, I think, is that, of course, we've had a strong revenue bounce because of a stronger than expected economy, but also the tax revenues of this largest share of the economy has rarely happened in a modern fiscal history, which means rarely happened ever and only two or three times since World War II. So uh, as Kate pointed out, taxes aren't the problem here. And in particular, individual income taxes soared to 10.5% of the economy. Those revenues will fall down somewhat over the next 10 years by CBO's analysis, but they're still going to be above 18%, which is a very healthy amount. Now, spending is where the boom is. And why don't you break that down a bit, Kim? Right. And the good point here just to make is that taxpayers are doing their fair share, okay? <laughs> They're doing everything they were expected to and more. We have a government that's now taking a quarter of national income rather than its usual fifth. And so when the president complains about people not paying their fair share, he ought to take a look at these numbers. As you say, it's the spending side. It is now 
24.8% of GDP. That is up from 21% over the 50-year average. And I think the really scary thing here is that while some of our pandemic programs are going away, that level of spending at GDP is set to basically continue up until about 2033 over the next foreseeable future. And what's also notable, Paul, is where that spending is going. So spending for defense is now at 3% of GDP, well down from its average of 4.3%. The only other times that it has been this low has been in 1940. And in the years of 1998 through 2001, and as our editorial pointed out today, you don't get any special marks for noting that one of those was right before World War II and one was right before 9-11. And those troughs ended up being a wake-up call and we got back on the ball in terms of defense spending. But the money is really getting plowed into mandatory spending, which is now 16.3% of GDP. It's a new peak. It is way up from the 10.9% average. And the scary thing to me, Paul, is that mandatory spending, it's on autopilot. We are having a kind of weird national debate about it, and only in that the Biden team is accusing Republicans of wanting to get rid of mandatory programs. Not true, but we're not having a, a real debate about how we fix them. And with a bunch of baby boomers still getting ready to retire, those numbers likely are going to get worse. It's a crucial point. When you say mandatory programs, you mean Social Security and the major health care programs like Medicare and Medicaid and CHIP and some other subsidies. They're on automatic pilot because you get them if you reach certain qualification levels, like age, for example, and some on income level in the case of Medicaid. And the perversity of the political moment is that even as they take ever more larger share of the economy an ever larger share of the federal budget, we become less likely to even say, well, maybe we should try to reform them. <laughs> oh, no, can't do that. And so, as you say, 16%, 16.3% of the uh, economy in mandatory spending, and it's going to fall a little bit uh, here as probably because Medicaid spending will fall as the healthcare emergency, the pandemic emergency ends. But then it's going to be back up by the end of the decade when people like me and other baby boomers decide to retire. And all I can say to the two of you is, we're going to get ours, but I'm not so <laughs> sure you're getting yours. So the answer, Paul, is we're not going to let you retire. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, but it's true. It's, it's really a perverse kind of a state of affairs. And there was a greater political imperative and almost something of a consensus in the late 1990s that these programs should be reformed. But now, oh, can't touch them, Kate. Yeah. CBS says the Social Security Trust Fund is cruising towards insolvency within a decade, which would result in benefit cuts if it's not addressed. And it's increasingly looking like we are only going to deal with it in the event of a crisis. The other thing I'd add from Kim's point about, you know, national defense and our spending there, some other factors to keep in mind I mean, we've been writing a lot about how defense spending, given the world environment right now, should be closer to what it was during the Cold War, uh, closer to 5 or 6% of GDP. But right now, it is being crowded out by all these other programs that we're discussing. And including net interest on the debt is going to overtake defense at some point on the current trajectory. And that will be even more rapid and acute if interest rates go up. 
So that is another example of where our spending is really out of whack. I mean, when we talk about, for instance, the last time we had 100% of debt held by the public of the economy, 100% of the economy, we're looking at years like the end of World War II. 1944, 1945. (laughs) Yes, right. And what were we up to then? What were we spending a lot of money on? It was our national defense. So I worry that we're now in this period that doesn't have a real parallel because we're really exhausting our capacity to spend, but we're not spending on our national defense. So that is just a really alarming set of factors. I would just add one more quick thing, which is that the CBO report and all projections rely on assumptions. And one assumption this report makes is that inflation will level off and be back about at 2%, uh, I think close to 2025. So the damage here could be much worse than it looks, even if that doesn't materialize. So it's hard to believe that this might be the rosy picture, but it very well could be. All right, thanks. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk more about the, uh, the budget and its implications and the pace of spending when we come back. High inflation has impacted many of us. But what happens when prices go up 55, 67, or even 276%? It makes living more costly. It eats into your paycheck. At the end of the day, the salary itself, it's not enough. And money quickly loses value. You can't save, you can't do anything. Check out our complete series on extreme world inflation from A to Z, from What's News, plus other exclusive content on WSJ Special Access, only for WSJ subscribers. Don't forget, you can reach the latest episode of Potomac Watch anytime. Just ask your smart speaker, play the opinion Potomac Watch podcast. That is, play the opinion Potomac Watch podcast. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Welcome back. I'm Paul Gigo with Kim Strassel and Kate Batchelder-Odell. And we're talking about the budget numbers and their implications for our political debates and the federal fiscal position. And a couple of things just to elaborate on points that were touched on in the last segment. On the defense budget, we have this historic low, as Kim mentioned, of the 3% of GDP. This has only been reached twice. And I think the chance that this is going to stay there is highly suspect because of the various national strategic challenges we face. Ukraine, there's a hot war and we're sending tens of billions of dollars over there to help Ukraine, I think correctly, but that's money. China is a threat, increasing challenge. We have to meet that with greater spending. Technology and investments in technology are going to be required, and that will be required whether or not there's a shock to our security environment uh, based on what might happen with a terrorist state or some use of AI or some other kind of uh, challenge to the homeland that would shock us into spending more. So I think that it's fanciful to think this 3% number is going to change unless we want to make ourselves a lot more fanciful to think it will not change and will not have to be ramped upward unless we're going to make ourselves more vulnerable from a defense point of view. The other point I'd make is interest on the debt. It is going to go up, as Kate mentioned, and it's going to continue to chew up even greater shares of the national economy. And the interest rate assumptions that the Congressional Budget Office makes are 
quite optimistic going forward. I don't think they're going to be as low as they suspect, Kim. Right. And just to put a number on that, the estimate that they have is that interest is going to consume 3.6% of GDP in a decade. So just think about that for a second. We were just talking about those defense numbers. We're going to be paying more on interest than we are putting into our national defense, which is just stunning. And I agree with you, Paul, that I think that those numbers are a bit optimistic. It's very worrisome. All right, let's talk a little bit about the implications for all this for the debt limit debate. House of Representatives, Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker, and his members saying they want to use the debt limit, which will be reached sometime now They based on CBO's numbers, sometimes now in June or July probably July. They want to use that as leverage to negotiate with President Biden over some kind of lower spending path on spending, maybe some constraints on spending going forward. We don't know the specific proposals. And the President Biden says, oh, sorry, not going to talk about it. Will these numbers, this reality, have any implication? Well, we know it has implications for that debate, but will it have any effect on the White House and its willingness to negotiate? Yeah, well, I think that depends how Republicans use what little leverage they have. I do have one last little grievance on these numbers to get in here, which is 3.3 trillion more in debt than CBO said last May. That is twice what the GOP tax reform in 2017, more than twice what it was expected to cost and was howled down as just irresponsible, even though some of that money just required um, modestly higher growth to recoup to the Treasury. And $3.3 trillion just in a year, just an enormous sum, and it doesn't receive the same kind of treatment. Let me interject there just for a second to ask you, yeah. what contributed to that $3.3 trillion increase? Well, I mean, the Inflation Reduction Act, surely it was, was a big part of it. The Biden programs. The, yeah, right. The, the Biden, Biden programs, programs right. Yeah. They're, they're deliberate choices on spending. There's some of it is interest, but it's really their own, the Biden's choices in legislation. So that is really what did it. And, you know, they're taking credit for pandemic programs expiring and reducing the deficit from a higher point. But I think that's a little bit silly. Anyway, on the debt ceiling point, it depends, I think, what the Republican ask is, how unified they are and whether they come up with something that they can extract from they only hold the House. So they need to have, I think, modest expectations. There's a lot of discussion right now about defense spending reform. We are would be enthusiastic about civil service reform for the Pentagon. I think civilians are the largest branch of the Pentagon and they get all of the pay raises that the troops get, meaning, you know, it's, it's an expensive enterprise. There's definitely reform to be had there, but I think the reality is, is you really would need to plow all those savings back into buying more attack submarines, building a larger air force from this discussion we're having. We're so behind the power curve there. I don't think that's going to be a place where you could just take money and put it in the bank. I do think, though, there is an opportunity for Republicans to suggest some modest, maybe rescissions of COVID funds, maybe some looking under the hood on discrete programs on, you know, the public schools that money been going out the door, Head Start. I mean, there's a lot of programs where they could start to try to enforce some discipline, but they need to have a strategy and an ask. And so far, I'm not seeing much of that. Well, you don't have to actually cut spending. Those cut is the word that Democrats like to use to raise alarm about supposed hardship, even after these huge increases. One thing you have to do, leaving aside Social Security and Medicare, is slow the rate of growth and you'll get significant savings going forward. That's what happened after 2011 when the Republicans cut a deal with Barack Obama. The problem then was that the cuts were so severe to defense that they uh, became counterproductive and really hurt operations and maintenance and the readiness of the force. 
and that had to be turned around. But you can get some savings. I agree with you. And the great perversity here, I mentioned the, the late 1990s. I apologize for my budget nostalgia here. But, you know, covering this in the 1990s, Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton created a Medicare commission and it included Patrick Moynihan, Robert Carey, and John Bro, all three Democratic senators, and they signed up to a reform that was Paul Ryan's Medicare reform, premium support. And there was an appetite then in big chunks of the Democratic Party to do something about entitlements based on the argument that Bob Carey, I think, made in our pages at the time, which was that if you don't do something about entitlements, it will crowd out everything else. Think funds for education, transportation, and national defense, among many other things that people like to spend money on. Funds for nutrition, for school lunches, for Pell Grants, all of that. Of course, all of that has come true, except it's worse now. <laughs> you know, one other thing here, Paul, which I just think the need for Republicans to really focus on spending restraint is that in the past, when we have racked up deficits, etc. One of the things we have always looked to in order to save us, as it were, is higher economic growth, right? But the problem here right now is, A, the size of the hole that we have created. And so without some spending restraint, you're simply not going to dig out of that hole. But the other problem is that because spending has reached what it is, it's hurting growth. The CBO report is expecting 2.4% growth of GDP over 2024 to 2027, but then it's going to drop to 1.8%. And that's what we call basically secular stagnation. And the, the very alarming thing to me is that the Biden team is good with this. They're fine with this. That is the cost that they are willing to pay if they get their bigger entitlements and their bigger government. But it, what it kind of consigns the country to is this sort of dismal growth prospects going forward that are not going to be enough to fix this current spending mess that we have. It's vital that we start to impose some spending restraint, which, by the way, would also, on the other hand, the positive thing of potentially helping growth by reining back in that federal government, which is crowding out the private sector. All right. Uh, thank you, Kim. And thank you, Kate. We'll leave it at there. Try not to depress you too much. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it's the old Herb Stein line, uh, economist, which he says, if something can't continue, it won't. And sooner or later, <laughs> that is where we will be with all of this. The main question is, how much pain do we want to endure when that time ultimately comes if we don't do anything in advance. All right. Thank you to Kate and Kim. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition of Potomac Watch.